I would encourage you to open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 47. Today we are going to be going over Genesis 47, 28 through 31. I had intended to, um, to preach on a larger portion of scripture, but it really occurred to me as I was thinking about it this week that uh, it is, there are two, two different emphases in there are two different emphases, one in Genesis uh, 47, 28 through 31, and then in chapter 48. Uh, the emphasis in 47 is definitely on preparation for death. And then in 48, we have the blessings given. I, didn't want to, um, I did not want to take away uh, the, em- uh, the impact, shall we say, of uh, what Jacob uh, was getting at in, in chapter 48 as he begins his blessing uh, with Joseph's children. And I also did not want to diminish the impact of uh, the emphasis on the inevitability of death that occurs in Genesis 47. So I decided to, that's a long way of saying I decided to split the sermon. Uh, we'll be going over Genesis 47, 28 through 31 today. But before we uh, attend to God's word, let's go before him and ask for his blessing. Please join him. Sovereign Lord, we do pray that you would be with us in this place, that you would help us to understand your word and apply it in our own lives. We know that these words were not merely intended for the Israelites long ago to show them how it was that they ended up in Egypt and uh, to emphasize the covenant promises that you had made about their deliverance, or even to tell them that uh, Canaan was not uh, simply the promised land, but represented something more. You have intended your people in every age to be able to read these things and understand that there is a heavenly country that we are all seeking and that we desire. Help us, O Lord, to understand, therefore, the the particular impact of these words in our own lives, in this our day. Help me to preach. Let me say nothing that is out of keeping with your word. And may you be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Genesis chapter 47, and I'll be starting with verse 28. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Now, if I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. Then he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Many of you will already know the answer to it, but there was that old riddle, the riddle of the Sphinx, you remember, that uh, went, what creature walks on four legs in the morning, two legs in the afternoon, and three legs in the evening. This was a real head-scratcher for those in the ancient world. And the answer is, of course, man. Okay, uh, We walk on four legs, don't we? We're, we crawl as children in the morning of our lives. And then we walk upright in the, in the midday of our lives on two legs. But then eventually we go through that full arc and we begin to decline at the end and we need extra support in order to walk. We use a cane and therefore we walk on three legs in the evening. 
something that indicated that those in the ancient world understood that people go through a cycle. We uh, begin uh, very young, we age, and then eventually, of course, we become decrepit, and then finally we die. There's also another process that we see here in these verses. The fact is uh, we take care of our children when they're young, when they're walking on four legs. We have to stop them from uh, hurting themselves, drinking the bleach underneath the, uh, the, uh, the sink as much as they might like to do that, uh, to feed them, to clothe them, to nurture them. And we remember that Jacob, as we've been going through Genesis, Jacob did that with his son Joseph. For the first 17 years of his life, he took care of him. We spoiled him a little, we, we note, by being uh, so, well, being outrageously, uh, showing too much favor to him other than uh, over the other boys in the family. Uh, but he took care of him for those 17 years that he was in his house before he was sold into slavery by his brothers. Now. Uh, it is interesting, isn't it, that for the final 17 years now of Jacob's life, he is being taken care of by his son. But that, too, is the natural progression of things. We take care of our children when they're on four legs, and they take care of us, or they should, at least. Note to kids. Uh, when we are on our, our three-legged uh, stage of our life, Jacob is dying. But Jacob is not dying unhappy. Jacob is dying a happy man. We see that he had said, I had not thought to see your face again after Joseph had disappeared when he was 17 years old. And now he is overjoyed to be able to see not only his beloved son Joseph, but Joseph's own offspring in the land of Egypt. Jacob has been given uh, many things by the Lord, and he accepts and acknowledges them that, uh, that, but he, he still has one concern, and that concern is interesting. He's, he's wondering, where will I be buried? He has, he has definite ideas about where he should be buried. You remember we had read long ago that uh, Abraham had bought the cave of Machpelah in order to bury his relatives. And now it is Jacob's desire, his last and great desire, that he too would be buried with his relatives. He wants Joseph to promise him, when I die, carry me back to Canaan and put me in the same cave, in the same tomb that our relatives, my fathers, have been buried in. Bury me not here in Egypt, in this foreign land, but rather bury me in Canaan, in that land that the Lord had promised to us. So he calls upon Joseph and he makes him swear to him. Now, incidentally, uh, the expression, and we, we hit it uh, before in Genesis 24, it is very awkwardly worded in the English Bible. The expression, put your hand under my thigh. Uh, is not the best way of translating it, but I can understand out of propriety why the English translators did not want to translate it differently. The Hebrew uh, word there that is translated thigh is actually yurek, and it almost always refers to the procreative organ. Uh, what is the importance of that? Well, the procreative organ, in the case of men, bore the sign of the covenant. We seldom think of that, but it was literally a sign of the solidity of God's promises to them that went with them wherever they went. So the expression actually means demonstrate to me, as some have put it, the utmost 
covenant loyalty. Swear a promise to me that you will keep in the way that God keeps his covenant promises to me. That is the way I want you to swear to me. Be faithful just as God has always been faithful to us and has shown himself faithful in keeping all of his promises. Keep the promise that I'm about to ask of you that way. This is not, incidentally, where Jacob asks Joseph to bury him in Canaan. It's not, it's not superstition. It's not ancestor worship. One of the things that strikes you immediately as you go to Africa is uh, the, uh, the immense weight of, of superstition and ancestor worship. They still, it, it's interesting, you're being Kampala. This is the capital city of Uganda. And there will be witch doctor ads on the, uh, on the fencing and so on. I was speaking with pastors, and they were saying, well, one of the biggest problems that I have in my particular village is there's this plurality of these, uh, you know, shrines to false gods and ancestors all over the place. And he says, uh, and they'll say, you know, occasionally it's the case that I, I find members of my own congregation engaging in this kind of syncretism. It gives you a real insight into what was going on in Israel, obviously, when they were tempted to worship as the Canaanites worshipped all around them. But this is not ancestor worship. Jacob is not saying, bring me to my forefathers because I venerate them so much. This is actually, bring me to this place because I venerate the faithful God who always keeps his word. And I know that someday this land that God has promised to us, it will be filled with our descendants. This is the place where I want to be buried in the midst of the place that God has promised to give us. I want to dwell there until that day when I will arise again because of God's promises. I want to be buried, so to speak, in the place that God is giving us as a homeland. Now, also, the interesting thing is, it's not the case that Jacob is thinking that when he dies, he needs to be carried to Canaan in order to be reunited with his family. He knows that after he dies, he will be spiritually reunited. He will be with them. Once he goes on to his final reward, he will depart to be with his fathers, in that sense, who knew the Lord, who had those promises. The burial is an outward signification of those things in the same way that the covenant sign is an outward sign of God's promises, all of the covenant promises he made. We bury our, our, our people together because we, we understand that the Lord has called them. They're part of not just a family, but the family of faith, and they are looking together to that resurrection. Something very important. That's one of the reasons why the Christian faith has always emphasized the importance of burial. We are supposed to treat the body with reverence and concern, even after the person has died. Not because we think, of course, that they're still dwelling in their body. The Egyptians, of course, used to mummify the remains of their kings, and they would fill their tombs with all of these things, and the idea that they would be bringing these things on with them into the afterlife. We don't believe that, of course. We know that they've gone to heaven, and you can't take anything with you. There are no U-Hauls behind hearses. There are no pockets in shrouds. The only thing that we can take out of this life is the same thing that we brought into this life, and that is nothing. We were born naked. I came into this world, and naked I'll leave. I'm not taking anything with me. 
And so, therefore, the only things that we can count on are those things that the Lord provides for us, ultimately. That's what they're thinking of. Jacob will have joined his, his forefathers in heaven before the Lord prior to being buried. But he wants to be laid in the same place they are. So that there is that, once again, that signification of the idea of God's covenant promises made to me and my kin and looking forward to that day of rising up again together. Canaan is, and this is the way that the Bible gives it to us, it is a pledge and a reminder of our real home. Canaan was a sign in a very real sense, pointing them to their heavenly home, pointing them to what would happen after the Lord returned, after Jesus returned. Jacob is therefore requesting, carry me back to the cave of Machpelah and there to be laid with the rest of my family members until the resurrection, until we obtain the fullness of the inheritance of all of the promises that have been made to us. Interestingly enough, the, the cave of the patriarchs, and most of you probably know this, I, I, I guess, will know that the cave of the patriarchs or the, the cave of Machpelah, it still exists. Uh, and uh, it is uh, in Israel, obviously, in the uh, area of Hebron. Um, and interestingly enough, the, uh, the, there have been a number of, obviously, the Christians came in, they built a, a church over it, then they built a castle, the Muslims came in, they knocked it down. Since the patriarchs are holy to, uh, to Muslims as well, they, they built a mosque over it, and then the crusaders came in and knocked down the mosque and so on. And apparently, in uh, around 1113, during the reign of Baldwin II of Jerusalem, According to Ali al-Harat, writing in 1173, a certain part over the cave of Abraham had given away, and a number of Franks, that is crusaders, they were known as, uh, as Franks because most of them came from France, uh, had made their entrance there, and then they discovered the bodies of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their shrouds having fallen to pieces, lying against a wall. And the king, after providing new shrouds, closed the place to be closed once more, and that was the last time that anybody reported ever seeing the remains of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the patriarchs. So it is interesting that there was that testimony of uh, their being laid in this place, and we know where they are, and we know that they're looking forward someday to being raised up. They weren't just looking. That's the important thing. We lose that today with, uh, with a great emphasis on, on physical Israel. We'll talk about the Jewish homeland and so on. And we forget that it wasn't merely a strip of land in Palestine that God was promising his people. They wanted something far more important than that. Uh, Hebrews 11 tells us, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 11, 13. Speaking of the patriarchs, the author of Hebrews says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. All of the patriarchs, although they've received the promises of God about Canaan and the land being given to their descendants, they were pilgrims and wanderers in this world. They were seeking a better city, a better refuge. And they knew that that would be delivered into their hands after they died. But they wanted to be buried in Canaan, looking forward foreshadowing that, uh, that great deliverance that would be coming 
uh, eventually through the Redeemer that the Lord had appointed. So Joseph swears and Jacob bows in prayer. Now this is another translational, um, translators go back and forth on this issue. What does he bow his head on? Because in Hebrews, the indication is that he bowed his head on his staff. He was standing and uh, he bowed in prayer, holding onto his staff, the, uh, the, the, third, the third leg that men walk on in their, uh, in their later years. Um, but translators go back and forth. The original Masoretic text, for instance, renders this particular, and here's the, here's the problem, I'll try to uh, boil it down. The, uh, the Hebrew um, of the Old Testament consisted originally just of consonants. And the idea was that you knew where the vowels were. You threw them in instinctively. So you, would, uh, you wouldn't have to write cat. You could write CT and everybody would put an A there and understand that you were speaking of a feline, not cut uh, or um, you know, caught or something else like that. People would just know the text and, and would read it. Well, in the Masoretic text, uh, the vowel points were um, given for mita, which is bed. But uh, in the Septuagint version, they rendered it mata, which is staff. You can change the vowels and it changes what he was uh, leaning on. What do I think, uh, it said, not that I'm you know, any great shakes when it comes to Hebrew translation at all, so uh, there is that. But um, I, I believe we should simply follow the New Testament's uh, um, wisdom in this. And uh, the inspired author of Hebrews, by faith, this is uh, Hebrews 11.21, by faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, and worship leaning on the top of his staff. So we have an indication that he was on a staff. Uh, the uh, number of commentators have said that uh, you know, the beds of Egypt weren't exactly the kind of thing that you could lean on anyway. They were mostly just mats that were laid on the floor, so staff makes a lot more sense. But all of that uh, is interesting stuff, but the more important thing is the application of these verses to us. What is the application of these verses to us? Well. Jacob was thinking about something that it's been my experience most Americans do not think about. What was Jacob thinking about? Well, not just where he was going to be buried. He was thinking about the fact that he was going to die. It is amazing to me often that uh, people who are uh, very close to death on death's door are still thinking about extra life. Jacob did not call Joseph to him and say, Now, my son, I understand Egyptians have certain bombs and preparations, and perhaps there's an exercise routine that will get me past year 147, maybe to 150, 152, who knows? I need to live forever, you understand. But that's often how we think, isn't it? We think as though we're going to be here on earth forever, that we can live forever here on earth. But that is not the case. All of us can, if we're honest about it, follow and track and see our decline. I am 53 years old. At one time, believe it or not, people would have thought about me as nearing the end of my life. I mean, think about it. Calvin, Knox, Luther, none of them made it out of the 50s. They all died at roughly the age that I'm at. In fact, most of my favorite Reformed theologians, it's not lost on me that they didn't make it to 60. So apparently Reformed theology really takes it out of you, but uh, in any event. Um, but I would be a fool if I didn't realize that most of the years on my odometer are in the rear view. I, I, am, uh, I am reaching, regardless of, of how long it takes me to get there, I'm, I've, got, uh, I've got less time ahead of me than I do behind me. 
most of my years are, are in the past now. I know that I am approaching, regardless of when it happens, the day of my death. The question is, do you know that you are approaching the day of your death? That it is coming towards you, that there is no way to avoid it? Let me give you some wisdom about that. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, as he himself was, was dying of cancer, uh, Lloyd-Jones was probably one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century, certainly uh, the greatest preacher in England preaching at the time that he did. He, uh, he said this, he reflected, even as he was dying of cancer, on the need to prepare for death. He said, we do not give enough time to death and to our going on. It is a very strange thing, this, the one certainty, yet we do not think about it. We are too busy. We allow life and its circumstances so to occupy us that we do not stop and think. People say about sudden death, it is a wonderful way to go. I have come to the conclusion that is quite wrong. I think the way we go out of this world is very important, and that is my desire now that I may perhaps be enabled to bear a greater testimony than ever before. Death is not something to slip past. It should be victorious. Christians, do you think about that? And note the language that he used. It's not an end. When materialists speak of death, and that's why I think Americans are so very frightened of it, they think about it as the, you know, the final closing of all the chapters. It's, it's done. Everything is over. But the way that Lloyd-Jones spoke about it there, it was merely a going on. It's the next stage in your development. We die, and then we are translated to glory. And none of the things that have afflicted us, none of the results of the fall, bother us after that. But we try to push it off. We either, we don't think about it, or we actively try to put it away from us. I was amazed when I realized that, uh, you remember that old childhood hymn, Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep? That uh, I was reading that, um, uh, that a, uh, a pastor had um, upset parents very much when he had, he'd actually recited the first part of it. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. What he didn't realize was that the majority of the parents in the uh, congregation were not praying that version of the prayer with their children. They were praying one where it's, you know, uh, and gladly awaken me or something in the morning. But, you know, there's no possibility whatsoever that this, you know, that this could be the last time I lay down my head on the pillow. But the fact is, even for children, that could be the case. None of us knows exactly when it is that our mortal lives will end, but we need to be ready for that moment, as Jacob was thinking about it, and not just preparing for our burial, even though we don't do that. One of the things that I have noticed uh, here in America is everybody prepares for the marriage ceremony, but very few people ever prepare for the marriage that follows the marriage ceremony. They, they put more time into where they're going to have their reception and where they're going to have their honeymoon than how they're going to spend the rest of their years together. Very little preparation is made for that. And while people may prepare for funerals, people seldom, I find, ask themselves, what is going to happen after I die? Are they really ready? for eternity? Are they ready to step beyond this mortal coil and into what comes next? Well, Matthew Henry said, Israel, a prince with God that had power over the angel and prevailed, yet must yield to death. There is no remedy. He must die. It is appointed for all men, therefore for him. And there is no discharge in that war. Jacob knew it. But notice this. Jacob 
was not afraid of it. I was talking uh, to the pastors in Uganda. We were talking about the, the various things that are difficult about preaching the gospel in your own particular cultural setting. One of the things that uh, most of the pastors mentioned was, you know, the baneful influence of the health and wealth, uh, um, all of that stuff. And I said, that's a problem we have as well. And so they said, so what is the biggest problem? And I said, just convincing people they're going to die. Uh, you know, that's the biggest problem that I have in conveying the gospel. And I mean that, um, you know, across the board. It doesn't matter. You can be 90 years old. And I'm still trying to convince you you're going to die. It shouldn't be the case that in a city where the profession, or, you know, the common profession, is, let's face it, fighting wars, that we really should have to persuade people that death is a reality. But the bizarre thing is, I, I can speak to, you know, that there's that old saying that if you line up three soldiers and you tell them two out of three of you are going to die, every single one of them is going to be looking at his friends saying, that poor guy, oh, you know. <laughs> they honestly, they just don't think it's going to happen to them. But it will. Brothers and sisters, it happens to all of us. We need to be ready. We need to be absolutely sure of what will happen to us in the way that Jacob was absolutely sure of what would happen to him. That he was going to be not only laid in the grave, the same tomb with his forefathers, but that he was going to the same place that his forefathers were. We've got to be willing and able to preach that to our relatives who are not prepared to die. That's one of the most uh, difficult things that I've had to do, to talk to people who are facing death, it's imminent, and they're just not ready. They're not ready to make that, that final step. They don't have assurance. They're afraid. I remember being on a plane with a, with a German woman. Uh, we hit some terrible turbulence, and the plane's going, you know, and people are throwing up, and, and every time we hit turbulence, she's going, Aah! and uh, I, I turned to her and I said, are you afraid? And she said, of course, <laughs> aren't you? And I said, no, I'm not. And she said, why? I said, I'm not afraid to die. And she looked at me like he's a terrorist. <laughs> she really did at that point in time. And I said, I, I'm, I'm not afraid to die simply because I know where I'm going. And it gave me an opportunity to share the gospel with her. I gave her my card. Uh, and I said, please, when you get to Fayetteville, uh, you know, um, contact me. I'd love to send you some more materials about what we talked about. And I, I did pray with her, and she was thankful for that. She didn't, um, she didn't contact me later on, but uh, it, it did provide an, an opening for that. I hope you're not afraid to die, because it happens to all of us eventually. But it shouldn't be something that we fear, something that we, we think we can avoid, we can run away from. It should be something that we understand is going to happen if Christ doesn't return. And because of what he uh, doesn't return while we're alive, we know Christ is coming back, <laughs> okay? We absolutely know that. But if he doesn't return while we are still walking around on the earth, then we will go to meet with him. It is always, brothers and sisters, for those who are Christ's people, it is always either we go to be with him or he comes to be with us, one or the other. And so therefore, death is nothing to fear. And it can be the case that in your death, and I've seen this happen. I've seen people who are dying in the Lord bear their greatest testimony at that moment in time in the way that they weren't afraid, in the way that they knew that they were going to see their master. They positively declared to the entire world, death has no power over me. And isn't that what the Bible tells us? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul wrote these words. He said, starting with verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. 
We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last moment, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now notice the way that Paul constructs that. He speaks of the sting of death being gone. The grave has no more victory over you, O Christian. And your work has eternal value. Why does it have eternal value? Your work here on earth has eternal value because you go on. There is no end for you. You are immortal, not in the sense that you will never die in the fleshly sense, but that you have an immortal soul that goes on forever. And that if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, then you know that nothing can separate you from his love. Nothing. And that someday you will see him face to face. As I get older, I find that's my greatest desire. I want to be with the Lord. I want to stand with the people who are worshiping him. All of those saints who have gone on. But most especially, I want to see my Lord face to face and no longer as through a glass darkly. I hope that's your great desire, to see him. And then someday gloriously to stand in that train, the army that we read about in Revelation 19 that overcomes the beast and all of those who are not following the Lord. The Lord speaks a word and the conflict's over. That's what we're looking forward to, isn't it? Standing in the midst of that glorious army in his train. And won't that be a day that fills our hearts with a joy unspeakable? The end of sin, the end of the world, the flesh, the devil, all of our greatest enemies finally put down forever, never again to trouble us. Everything that stands against you in that day fades away and is gone forever. What are we afraid of then? When so great a salvation awaits us, when glory is going to open up for you. Brothers and sisters, death for you is victory. It can't hurt you. You pass through the veil and you enter in. And that is the greatest assurance that I can give to anyone. That when they die, if they are in Christ, they will see the Lord and always be with him. No more to suffer. No more to cry. And joy unspeakable follows thereafter. Let's look forward to that. Let's prepare for that day. And let's do all that we can to prepare others for it. So that they are ready as well for when that day comes. Let's go before the Lord. God our Father. There is a river that all of us must cross sooner or later. And none of us have any right to think that we will cross it later than others. It may be, O oh Lord, that we only have a few days or even minutes left to go. But let us not be afraid, no matter whether we have a long time or a short time ahead of us. For we know, O oh Lord, that this time of trial and testing here on earth is only a brief period of probation. And we know that when it ends, we enter into the largest part of our existence. We enter into eternity. And so, Lord, let us be ready in body and in soul to face that day. 
Let us be prepared to stand before our Savior, having no fear, knowing that we confess the blood of the Lamb, knowing that our sins have been paid for in full and that we are clad in his righteousness. Let us look forward to hearing those words we long to hear. Well done, O good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Help us then to be faithful in those things that the Lord has set before us. And especially knowing that these things must surely come to pass, preparing others for that great day. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.